1 John chapter 2, verse 28. If you would stand with us, please, once you've found it. By the way, in your bulletin this morning, you will find a synopsis of the next section of 1 John. Uh, just like you, a few weeks back, got a synopsis of the first seven mini-sections, the first big subsection of First John. And so this can maybe help you study ahead and just be prepared for what we're going to be doing each week. I'm not going to go through this morning this, this list of, uh, that, that we have on your outline of where we've been in First John. I mean, you can read. But is it safe to say that if you've been here at all, you get it that the book of First John is about this thing called fellowship? Okay, thank you. And that, do we get it, that fellowship is not coffee and donuts per se? Do we get that? Thank you. (laughs) That there's this intimate, that the Greek word koinonia means an intimate connection that is about sharing our very life, the very life of God with him And with his son, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, and with one another. That's what the body of Christ has always been intended to be. And that that fellowship, according to John, is everything. Because remember, he said, if you will have this fellowship, listen to this now. The apostle said, my joy will be made full. Are you kidding me? Like, if you get that, you get everything. If you're hanging with the Father and with His Son and with His people in intimate community, then you've got everything else will drip off of that reality. Is it fair to say that we get that? All right. Then he's had this extended introduction where he says several things about what that fellowship looks like and feels like. And by the time he gets to 1 John 2.28, this is like the theme verse within the larger theme of fellowship um, in this whole letter. And, um, and so I want to read it. I want to read it in three or four different versions. And I also want to tell you that, yeah, yeah, we'll just go there, all right? 1 John 2.28. And we're now ready to start the body, if you will, of the letter. After the prologue and the long introduction, this is the beginning of the body of the letter. And this is what John says. And now, little children, abide in him. Could be the father there, could be the son, probably both. Probably in John's mind, it, it, it's, it's both. So that when he, here he's talking about Christ, when he appears, in fact, the more I think about it, he's probably saying abide in Jesus primarily, that when Jesus, that same Jesus appears, that we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, let me read uh, this to you in the, the New Living Translation that some of you might have. And now, dear children, continue to live in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. And here's the English Standard Version. And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 
And then from the message, which is uh, more of a paraphrase, but it's, it's good stuff. And now, children, stay with Christ. Live deeply in Christ. Then we'll be ready for him when he appears, ready to receive him with open arms, with no cause for red-faced guilt or lame excuses when he arrives. Eugene Peterson, man, that guy. That guy's the bomb. Now, just to show you that this is the theme of the letter, would you go to chapter 4, verse 17? There's something in literary circles called an inclusio. And when an author states a theme clearly in one section of the letter early on and then later on states it clearly again, you can be fairly sure that he's trying to encapsulate a section of his communication with what's called an inclusio. So we have an inclusio in 417, 18, and 19. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Do you see the theme? Continued. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect or mature in love. We love him because he first loved us. So in between 4 or 228 and 417 through 19, John is going to develop a theme about fellowship that could probably best be stated by this point, and you can put this on the screen, if you will, Jason, that our experience as believers, you also have it on your outline, but let's wait. There we go. Our experience as believers with Jesus at his return, whether shame or boldness, those are the only two options, depends primarily on how we walk in fellowship with him now. You may be seated. All right, you with me so far? Okay. Three words that I think capture this verse and what John is feeling inside his heart as he begins to expound this theme of the return of Jesus and how our intimacy with him and our fellowship with him impact our experience of his return. The first word is the term urgency. And the reason that John is feeling urgency as he gets to 1 John 2.28 is because what he's been describing to us is is that with the first coming of Jesus, this one that he said he had touched and felt and been with and eaten with in the prologue, with the first coming of Jesus, we are now living in what John describes as the last hour. So, keeping your finger in 228, go back to chapter 2, verse 8, just to give you a little bit of context. John says, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness, look look at this, is passing away, and the true light is already shining. There's the end of something and the beginning of something else, okay? Now drop down to chapter 2, verse 17, that Joe preached just a few weeks ago. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. You see this, this thing that is passing away? There's an old era, an old eon that is now leaving. Something new has been inaugurated 
with the coming of this one named Jesus of Nazareth, this one that he has seen and touched and felt that he has learned to call Messiah. Now look at chapter 2, verse 18. Here it's stated very clearly in what Pam, Pastor Pam preached last week. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming even now, quite frankly, there are many Antichrists who have already come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Now this theme, uh, my brothers and sisters, is not just in John. It's also, for example, in Paul. Uh, a passage like Romans chapter 13, verse 12, where Paul, it's kind of obscure, but Paul says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This theme that there's something urgent about our lives because something has ended with the coming of Jesus and something new is, 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 is breaking forth. Over the years, commentators have said, well, John was obviously wrong because it's 2,000 years later. And so if it was the last hour, John was obviously expecting the world to end quite quickly. And can I tell you, that's just bad exegesis. I mean, I could say, um, in fact, I kind of felt this when I turned 40. I could say, the last hour is upon me. When <laughs> I remember, man, they, they had a party for me, and they all wore black T-shirts, and, you know, and it was, it was like... But it obviously didn't mean that I was expecting to die at the age of 41. I mean, actually, I have pretty good genes um, uh, it, with God's mercy and me, um, you know, continuing to do what I do, you know, working out and such. Um, and with God's mercy and with my gene pool, I could, who knows, I might live to be a long time. So, but I could say, you know, it kind of feels like it's not the first hour, it's it's the beginning of the end of something, however long it might last. And what you need to know is John is a good Jew. As a Torah-following Jew, knew that the Old Testament had predicted for a long time that God was going to come and deliver his people. He was going to deliver them from their sin, their pain, their exile. He was going to judge their enemies. And all John is saying is, with the coming of Jesus, that time has been inaugurated. We don't know how long this hour is going to last, but it is the last hour. It could be a long period of time, but it, it is the last period of time. With the coming of this one named Jesus, who is coming as Messiah to, to deliver us. And so what John is trying to say here with this term urgency is that the dawning and the darkness has already begun. In fact, get this now, if you, if you want to feel a little reason to get up in the morning, it is our abiding in Christ, which we're going to talk more about in a moment. It is our fellowship with Jesus and his community that brings the life of this new age. John's term is eternal life. You and I are used to thinking of eternal life as what we'll get someday, you know, when we all get to heaven, what a day, ever. and that's a great song, and I, I love the song, it's a cool song, but we've had a tendency to think that we're going to get eternal life, no, 
the life that we experience and the intimacy that we have with the Father and with His Son and with one another, that is eternal life. And when Jesus came, He came to give it to us right now so that as we live it out, we are, we are the light dawning in the darkness. We are the sign that the new age has come. Yes, Cindy. You have eternal life. Instead, yes, thank you. Right here, right now, we got it in us. And when we live it out with one another, we are literally living light into the darkness, signifying that with Jesus, the last hour has come. The new age has been inaugurated. We don't know how long this is going to last until the final consummation, but it's here. And so there was this other old hymn. It came to my mind this week. Listen to this. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heirs of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Look, we are a foretaste to the world in their hopelessness. I, I don't want to be all about the election talking this morning. I don't. I don't. But it's going to leak in just for a minute here. <laughs> Do you feel the desperation that occurs about every four years when people lose their minds? In my view, let me chill out, chill out. Just chill, just chill. In my view, it's because they're not sensing enough of the foretaste of glory divine. And if they're not feeling enough of the foretaste, my brothers and sisters, I'm not, I'm not trying to blame, but we are the foretaste. And so if they're over here saying, there's really nothing but this, there's nothing but November the whatever, there's nothing but the ballot. There's nothing but the proposals. If proposal B doesn't, if proposal two, I don't know what we're going to do with proposal. Are you kidding me? And I don't, I don't, man, I don't mean to be offensive to any of you who are all up in it. My father was a state senator for 10 years. That was his calling. And God love him. He ran for Congress. And, uh, the system failed him. His own party, I've told you this before, his own party blackballed him because he wouldn't capitulate on the issue of abortion. So they voted in some guy that literally was living out of a car. God love him. God love him if that's where he was. But they, they just didn't like my dad's conservative stance on pro-life issues. That was 1986, man. Um... We are the foretaste of glory divine. Whoever's elected, they're not, they're not. The new age has come in Jesus Messiah. We are his people. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if we can only elect a Democrat. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, if we can only elect a Republican. 
If we can only elect Ron Paul. If we can only elect Jim Leland. And let me tell you, you guys were all for him until they lost three in a row. Don't, don't, be, don't be telling me you weren't. You were all for him. We're the foretaste. So John says there's a sense of urgency. We're living in the last hour. It could end any moment. It could end any moment. We're the last. This, is, this is it. It could be consummated and eternity could begin. Urgency. 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 All right, this is the second term. The term is anticipation because he's talking about anticipating in this last hour this second coming of Jesus. Let me tell you how this kind of fleshes out. If you take your finger and keep it in 1 John 2.28 and go back to 1 John, I'm sorry, go back to Acts chapter 1. You may already be familiar with this piece of history, but if not, let me tell you the last time that John, who wrote this letter, would have seen Jesus of Nazareth, this one who was the light in the darkness, all right? Acts chapter 1, verse 9, when Jesus had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, by the way, do you think that Jesus really went up. Let me ask that in a different way. I'm, 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 I'm tricking you, and, and, and the right answer will look like the wrong answer. Um, this is a human explanation because we're here, and we think of the heavens as being there, but really there are people on the other side of the globe who, are, in a sense, are standing underneath us looking the opposite direction. Do you get what I'm saying? Uh, most commentators today, and I think it's true, something really happened here, but I don't think Jesus really went up in the sense of up as we think of up. I think he went into another dimension. He went somewhere that is not here, yet is still here, you see. And the only way they could describe it is what they saw. So in a sense, you're right, but I think there's something even more mystical that's going on. But this was the last time that John saw him. While they looked steadfastly toward heaven, he went. And two men stood by them in white apparel, I'm assuming angels, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into the heaven, this same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven, into this other dimension of reality? Will so, here's the word, come. He will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now go back to 1 John 2.28. Now, now remember, the angel said, He's going to come again. And here, John says, with urgency, we are anticipating his coming. We want to have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Okay? The Greek word, you may have heard this before, is the word parousia. Another word that's often used and is used in this uh, uh, text is the word appearing, when he appears, phanaerao, which is just his revelation, his revealing of himself. Those two words are used 
of this return of Jesus, but the most common word is the word parousia, of his coming. And again, there were many Old Testament prophecies that God would one day come and literally he himself would come, but then it came to be looked at like, like it was going to be him coming in the person of this one named the Messiah. Just as he had come and delivered Israel from Egypt in bondage, just as he had come to Mount Sinai and given Israel the Ten Commandments, he was going to come again and deliver them from exile and deliver them from sin and deliver them from pain. He was going to come. And so, in fact, keep your finger in 1 John 2.28 and go back to the book of Isaiah just for a moment. There are so many Old Testament passages that talk about this coming. But look at Isaiah chapter 35. Remember, Israel's in exile here. And what does the prophet say? Verse 4, 35-4. Context, you're in exile. You feel deserted. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong and do not fear. Look at what it says. Behold, your God, what does it say? Will come. You see? With vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Look at the next two verses. Interesting. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus quoted these words about himself at a very crucial time in his ministry. Anybody remember when? Sorry? Uh, similar, not the same passage, though. He said when they unrolled the scroll in the, in the Nazareth uh, synagogue. How about when John the Baptist went to prison and said to his followers, go ask Jesus if he's the one. Which one? The one that is to come, you see. And what did Jesus quote to him? He quoted Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. You see the eyes of the blind, they're being opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. What was Jesus saying? Implicitly, if not explicitly, I'm the one. I'm the one that was promised that would come. You think John, steeped in Old Testament prophecy, you think John the Baptist didn't get it? Like, okay, man, I ain't about getting my head chopped off, but at least you is the one, you the guy, you're the guy. Now, look at Isaiah, um, we won't do this long, but it's too cool not to do some. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Some of you who know the, um, the oratorio, the Messiah, will recognize this verse. Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. You know the song we sing, Ron? It's, uh, and the glory of the Lord, let the glory of the Lord rise among you. You know what we're singing? Isaiah 60, verse 2, about the coming of the one who is light in the darkness. Behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, the deep darkness of the people, but the Lord will come and arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles will even come to the light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Then look at Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11. I love this. 
Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. And by the way, in the Old Testament, in the, in the, uh, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, most of the time, these prophecies use a form of the word parousia. So that when, when John uses this word as a Jew, he, he is definitely referring back to this promise of coming deliverance. Are, are you catching this? Are you with me so far? And then... I want you to go to Daniel chapter 7, which is probably the premier promise in the Old Testament of this parousia. Daniel 7, verse 13. I hope this is encouraging to you to see all of this woven together. And of course, this is a a dream that Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, had uh, when Daniel was there with some of the exiles from uh, Judah, and Daniel has this dream, and as part of the dream, he has this vision. Look at verse 13, Daniel 7, 13. I was watching in the night visions, he says to Belshazzar, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Remember how Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man? Most commentators think he is expressly linking himself to this text, which would have been either true or he's stark raving mad. One like the Son of Man is coming There it is again, the parousia with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the peoples and nations and languages will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. That's the Jewish perspective on the parousia. It's always been promised. In Jesus, the day began to be inaugurated when it was being fulfilled. Not completely yet, but being fulfilled. The day had started. The day had come because Jesus had come. Now, in the Greek world, just the non-Jewish Greek world, hear this. The word parousia was used of the Caesars. When they would come, or some of their underlords, if you will, when they would come to a city, and they would come to the outskirts of the city, and the people in the city would get word that one of the leaders in the empire had parousia, had come to their city to visit them. And so they would send a delegation out to take that overlord or that king or that Caesar and bring him back into their city where they would shower him with gifts. And literally, in the days when the Caesars began to be worshipped, they would shower the Caesar with worship and with praise. In this text, you've got a Jew, John, living in the Greco-Roman world, and he is bringing these two themes together. And what he is saying is that we are anticipating. The only thing that, that he couldn't have anticipated is that Jesus, this coming, this parousia, was going to happen in two stages. And the only way they figured that out is because of the career of Jesus. In fact, for a long time, You notice the disciples thought, this is it, baby. The kingdom's going to be set up right now. The only time they began to say that maybe, maybe this coming is going to be in two stages, the first one in Bethlehem and the second one when he returns and makes all things right. They only began to figure that out when Jesus was crucified and when he was resurrected and when he They saw him ascend into the other dimension, and the angel said, he's going to come again. They go, oh, now we get it. He came the first time, but 
And he did, he announced the good news, but he is coming again. And it's interesting, in the New Testament, the word parousia in the New Testament is only used of the second coming, never of the first coming. So in a way, you kind of get the feeling that New Testament authors began to realize when they were writing their documents that first coming was an initial phase, but the real coming of Isaiah 35, Isaiah 60, Isaiah 62, Daniel 7, that's the coming when he returns to make all things right. And so this Jew living in a Greco-Roman world who was a follower of this one, who was the coming one, is simply saying, someday, and this is what we're anticipating, this is what we're anticipating, this is the largest anticipation in our world, and if, and if you don't anticipate this, then you're going to find all kinds of other little puny stuff that really doesn't matter to anticipate, but this is really what we're anticipating is that one day this one named Messiah, the Ancient of Days, is in him. In fact, he is the Ancient of Days. He will come in his parousia. We don't know when, but we know it will happen because we saw him rise from the dead. We are guaranteed because of that resurrection that even though we, we, we sometimes go, when? When we look back at that empty tomb and we go, not to worry, he's going to come. Just like he came up out of that grave. One day at the end of this era that has been inaugurated, this last hour, he will come again and we will rise up. We will go out to meet him and we will usher him back. We're not going to go to some place called heaven. We're going to usher him back to this place and he will make it the new heavens, and the new earth. And the new, which the new Jerusalem will be in the center of the new heavens and the new earth. Urgency, last hour, man, there's some mess, and there is no hope. Gary said it today, my brother, no, there's no hope except for the coming one. Anticipation, his return. <clears throat> and in the meanwhile... We're living out the foretaste of the glory to come in the second coming of that one who is the coming one. Before I get to the last word, let me just say it again. My brothers and sisters, I don't, you know, I know you, but I don't know you. I don't live in your head. I'm not in your planner. I don't know the way you structure your days. The more you gain a sense of urgency, last hour, last hour, man, the darkness is sliding away, man, the light has come. The more you gain a sense of anticipation, the next thing on the calendar is the parousia, his appearing. And in between, we're it. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. There is no hope except for us. There's no hope except for us. The more that we get that sense, the more that everything else, it's important in very significant ways, but more it is important because of the way it fits into this urgency and this anticipation of that which is the most important. Otherwise, what will happen to us, you and I, will be mired in our lives in a sea of mundane detail that the enemy will continue to 
roll out before us. And so we can look back at our calendars and say, wow, that day I was all upset because the toilet backed up. And that day, of course, everything was about my raise. And of course, then everything the next day was about my car breaking down. And then the next day, it was all about even a good thing like a birthday party. And we make those things that only have importance as they relate to the urgency and the anticipation in the last hour of this coming one, they become that which defines our lives. And then we find ourselves at the front of a church in a casket, and we have lived with virtually no urgency at all, no anticipation at all. And thus, quite frankly, we've not lived with much intimate fellowship, life-giving fellowship at all, because it's the urgency and the anticipation that draws us back to the fellowship of the Father and His Son and His people. Does this make sense? You see why this is the theme of John's letter? It's not just, isn't it cool? We can have some fellowship. It's really cool. It's really fun, which it is. Sometimes it's dicey, but It's more fun than dicey if we're living it right. He's saying, don't you understand, man? This is not the way it's always going to be. There's something more important about this fellowship than just the fact that it's the best way to live. This anticipates the end of all things. And the coming of the one who's going to make all things right. So, first word, first word, second word, third word, evaluation. Let's spend the last 10 minutes here. Evaluation is on John's mind because at this parousia, at this second coming, we will stand before him to give an account. An account. Now, 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 stay with me here. Even believers, even believers, even believers who are guaranteed eternal life, we have eternal life already, the New Testament says will give an account for their life. Let me say it again. Even believers who already have eternal life, were guaranteed life with God in eternity, will give an account for our life. You notice there's no question of eternal life here because what does John call these human beings? How does he address them? What does he call them? Little children. What is he talking about? Children of who? Children of God, children of the Father. He says, even as he's sharing these really pretty astounding words, he's saying, you're children of the Father, sons and daughters. He's got you. That doesn't mean that we're not going to be called to give an account. In fact, keep your finger in 1 John 2 just for a moment. Go over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> Verse 11, 1 Corinthians three eleven. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day. What day? The day of his coming. 
will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and that fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Did you see that? He himself will be saved. She herself will be saved, will be saved, but their, their, their life will be evaluated, and there will either be an opportunity for reward or loss of reward. So I will stand before the judge one day, and I will take, let's just say, every sermon that I've ever preached. Let's just say that piece of work. 4,000 of them. And they'll be lying right there before the Lord. And he'll be looking at them. And he will see what of the, that body of work was done for him and what part of it was done really was all about me. And that part will be burned up. It's, it's a pretty strong metaphor, but I think we understand the metaphor, don't we? And what's left. What, this wedding ring, I mean, gold, baby. Fire refines it, but it doesn't, as far as I know, any chemists here, fire doesn't exterminate gold, does it? Okay, good illustration then. It purifies it, but what's left will be the gold of my life's work. How I, he'll take my marriage and say, what did, where were you just all about you, Kevin? Where did you lay down your life for your wife, your best friend, and your family? This is just another piece of 1 John 2.28 with a little different emphasis. Do you get this? Uh, go to 2 Corinthians, just a second, Dan, because I'm running out of time here, so just one second. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> this is talking about the same piece. Let's start with verse 8. He says, we're confident, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, well-pleased to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Now, look at this. Who's he writing to in Corinth, believers or non-believers? Believers, all right? Verse 10, for we, believers, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the parousia, or an event that will happen right shortly after the parousia, the coming, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, look at verse 11. We usually skip that. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well-known to God, and I also trust are well-known in your consciences. There's a piece of reality there that we're going to stand before a holy and righteous God as his sons and daughters, and he's going to take our lives and say, what of this was done for me and what was not? And according to John, the main criteria for evaluation is this word abiding, which is used like 120 times in the New Testament. John uses it about half those times, and 1 John uses it about 25 of those times. It's just a word for fellowship. It means to intimately connect, to walk with, to live with. The main criteria for the evaluation will be this abiding. This is not about perfection. And I know how shame-based we are, so I know some of us are going to go out and go, I screwed up yesterday. Well, welcome to the club. That's not what this is about. Last night we were in Indiana, I was speaking to a bunch of recovery groups, and um, I got to go to this sports banquet afterward. And a bunch of my old ball-playing buddies were there. A couple of my coaches were getting inducted, and I saw guys that I hadn't seen for years. Remember Pat Underwood that used to pitch for the Tigers back in the day? Saw Pat last night. He was from my hometown. We had a moment. I saw this one brother. His name is Steve Brew. Now, what I remember about Steve Brew is I... I used to catch on the high school team, and my junior year, his senior year, 
I used to catch for him a lot. One game, he was pitching a no-hit shutout. And I had either a passed ball or something that I didn't do too well. And a guy from the other team, a guy that I just could not stand, but he was a good ball player, i got to say. He, when, in a moment, when I got that ball and I was getting ready to throw it back into the picture, he broke for home. You never see this, but he stole home. And because I wasn't just quite as alert as I should have been, um, he stole home. My buddy Steve continued to pitch a no-hitter, but um, this guy stole home, and so he lost the shutout. And over the last 40 years, because I haven't seen this guy for 40 years, over the last 40 years, all I thought about when I thought of Steve Brew and me was, I ruined his, I ruined his shutout. When I saw that Steve Brew last night, he was introducing me to everyone as the guy that was his personal catcher, which he loved so much because I was, I said, but, and I, I was just joking kind of, but I, I said, don't you remember when I lost that? No, I don't even remember. What are you talking about? I don't even remember that game, you see. <laughs> now, is this a bad illustration or do you get the point? Steve would say, to use biblical language, he and I abided together. Did, was it perfect? No, man. Pass ball, lost the shutout. Eee. But we're talking the tenor of the relationship. I know some of y'all are down on Justin Verlander for that debacle when, you know, Sandoval hit those three home runs. But you've got to say in biblical language, he's been abiding in baseball whatever. I mean, the brother, if you've got him on your fantasy team, man, what a year. This is not about perfection. Don't go out here going, oh, I'm so screwed. I'm so screwed at the Pharisee. I'm so screwed. But it is motivation to live with, be with, walk with, abide in, keep our eyes focused on this one who's named Jesus because this will be the criteria by which we will be evaluated at his coming. Are you with me so far? Now, just to wrap this down and to land this plane, he says there's only two options. The one option will be confidence and boldness. And the Greek words, the Greek word here, parousia, not parousia, parousia, translated confidence and boldness. Guess what this Greek word means, really? Confidence and boldness. One Greek scholar, thank you. Confidence and boldness. That we will be able to stand if we've abided in him before a holy God. We'll be able to stand there like this. Now, I want you to see the screen. I hope, this, I hope this captivates something for you or captures something. This is a picture, and this is the good one. Um, this is a picture of my little girl. My li- no, my, my, I called her my little girl. What a Freudian slip. My grandbaby uh, with her daddy. I mean, do you see how safe... She has no idea how, well, yeah, she does. She knows how strong he is, but do you see how she's right toward him? And her heart is just bold and confident and joy-filled. This is an image of how, now listen, we can stand at the parousia with all of our imperfections. This isn't about the fact that we've screwed up once in a while. But the fact that we've abided in Christ, our life has been about intimacy with him that we have shared with this wounded, broken world. That, that can be us at the parousia. Now, the other word is the word shame. Um, could be translated shrink from. 
shame before him or shrinking back from him. I want to show you one more picture of my granddaughter. Now, before you show up, before you show up, this is when my daughter had said to Andrew, or to Andrew, my daughter had said to uh, Carol, or, uh, Ada, she likes Dora. You guys have kids or grandkids that like Dora? And Andrea had said, no Dora this morning. That's all she'd said. I want you to think of your own lives when Jesus says, not today. This is what she did when... <laughs> now, I'm, I'm using these illustrations to kind of, because I know we can get so cosmic with this and we can go nuts in our spirits, you know, and we can just live with all of this abject fear of, of torture or whatever. This, you want to have this face at the parousia? Or do you want, show the other picture, please. Do you want that face? You see? When, when the Lord Jesus, the one who is our life, says, what, 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 what did you do? with the intimacy that I offered you and how did you give that away in a world where they have none of it and we are the foretaste of glory divine. Let me just conclude by saying that are you shocked that even though we are eternally saved by grace, by the way, both of those faces go into the kingdom of God and the new heavens and the new earth. Do you, do you see that? And one day, what does Revelation say? The tearful face... All tears will be wiped away, okay? doesn't take away the significance of this moment. This teaching by John is not meant to freak you out or to freak me out. It's meant to motivate us to simply be close to him. If I was Leah's daddy and... Leah's daddy is sitting right behind her. And I said to her, one day, sweetie, I'm at the end of your life as your dad, and somehow I would miraculously live long enough to live to the end of her life. I'm going to, I'm going to look at your life and see how it went. And I'm going to evaluate it. And there will be, according to 1 Corinthians 3, reward or loss of reward. We're not even getting into that today. We're just kind of capturing the emotional ambiance because that's all John does. He doesn't get into the detail. You'll either be, Leah, you'll either be very ashamed and it'll be a, a not a good experience. It, you'll shrink back. Or you'll be so confident and so bold. And can I tell you, Leah, the only, now hear this, please, the only criteria is I want you to hang out with me. But, Dad, what if I, you don't get the grades? Leah. I want you just to hear this. I'm just asking you to abide in fellowship with me. And then we will give away the fellowship that we have to everyone around us. They'll see it. They'll want some of it too. And we can help them find that fellowship. That's it. That's all. Do you see? This is not, you go out of church today and you're like, I'm going to be more diligent. I'm going to be, good luck with that. Destined for failure, all about flesh, good luck. You're going to be the best Christian that ever, good luck. You'll end up being a self-righteous, in-denial Pharisee. But what if you went out here today saying, 
what the Father is saying is, be with me and my son. Just be, be with us. Be with us because we love you and we have life for you. We want you to share that life and we want you to give that life away because it's the last hour. It's urgent. My son's coming again. Anticipate it. And today, just walk with me. And when my son comes, you will not be ashamed. You will not shrink back. You will have boldness and confidence at his coming. One of my uh, favorite um, lines in modern literature comes out of this book, C.S. Lewis, The Last Battle. I've probably quoted it for you before, but... In the last story of Narnia, things don't end well. It's kind of tantamount to the parousia because there's a big battle at the end between the bad guys and the good guys, and Aslan, who's the picture of Christ, has to come and kind of make it okay. And the last king of Narnia is a guy named Tyrion. And if you know anything about the Narnian Chronicles and all the other Chronicles, man, the kings and queens are heroes. At the end of every story, man, the good guys win. It's all good. At the end of this story, it's not so good. And Tyrion feels like he's been betrayed and um, really doesn't know how to evaluate anything that's going on. And so Aslan comes to him before he shuts down Narnia and opens up his kingdom, which is called, of course, Aslan's kingdom. He comes to Tyrion, and, and in fact, let me just read it to you instead of just describing it. Um, they, were, they were with the dwarfs, remember? If you've read this, they're with the dwarfs, and the dwarfs, of course, can't really understand that they're in the new heavens and the new earth. They think they're eating cow dung in a stable. Instead, they're eating delicacies. It just shows that sometimes we can't get the blessing because we don't have eyes and ears and sensitivities to receive it but so they're fighting with the, they're fighting with the dwarfs Eustace one of the characters says let him alone but as he spoke the earth trembled the sweet air suddenly grew sweeter a brightness flashed behind them all turned Tyrion turned last because he was afraid and there stood his heart's desire, huge and real, the golden lion, Aslan himself. And already the others were kneeling in a circle around his forepaws and burying their hands and faces in his mane as he stooped his great head to touch them with his tongue. And then he fixed his eyes upon Tyrion, and Tyrion came near, trembling, and flung himself at the lion's feet. And the lion kissed him and said, Well done, last of the kings of Narnia, who stood firm at her darkest hour.